Okay. The scriptures, it, it's probably okay that we didn't get to read them because I changed a couple of them. So um, this morning we are going to wrap up. Thank you, Lord. Our three-week topical apologetics breakout study that um, has has specifically fallen under our title of Fate and Chance. Last week, we left off talking about moral absolutes, right? And antithesis, which is opposites. And at the very end of our time together last week, I asked you to make note or take note of this chain of words that I put together, which are indeed particular truths themselves, and as such, they too lead to a system of truth and a theme, which in essence is what we have been studying and what we will see very clearly in a moment, I hope. And this chain of words, it goes like this, if you remember, absolutes, absolute truths, give way to the recognition of antithesis or opposites, and that leads to a recognition of order, which suggests a designer, which suggests a creator, which leads to God and his sovereignty, which leads us to God's matchless glory. And I call it matchless glory because there's no comparison to the glory that God has. And those particulars, in that order, result in a theme that for our purposes, we are going to call this morning God's absolute sovereignty. God's absolute sovereignty. And God's absolute sovereignty and his resulting matchless glory are ultimately why I chose to do these three breakout sermons in the first place. Why is that so important? Because if God's if God isn't absolutely unequivocally sovereign over everything, then God does by default have limitations. And to me, and more importantly to scripture, to say that God has limitations is blasphemy. Yet we see people today implying and outright saying from the pulpit that God has limitations all the time. If the God of the universe has limitations, then even if his, even if, even if his sovereignty is limited by our free will, as so many people say, if he is limited in what he can know about our future, because he doesn't know what our free will decisions will be in that future, which is the classic open theistic argument we talked about before, then in not knowing our future choices, God forfeits his scriptural claims of absolute sovereignty. And if that's the case, he can't claim that he knows everything. And if he doesn't know everything that he is, then he is indeed not absolutely sovereign, which means that he's not 
God at all. You with me? This view of God that he has limitations is so far from what the Bible teaches that it's beyond ridiculous. The Bible teaches that God has absolutely no limitations. When I was preparing for this, I came across the website of a pastor in Scotland that has a bunch of teachings and books and MP3s and he was the grossest open theist I've ever read. He basically, his entire site was about how God has limitations everywhere and anywhere because of humanity's free will. I actually got angry reading it. And I was tempted to email the guy. I actually pulled the email up and then I, I, I deleted it. Um, don't argue with a fool lest you become like him. Anyway, in Numbers chapter 11, verse 23, where the Israelites are complaining to Moses about their misfortunes and the Lord's limitations in their lives, okay? God says to Moses, is the Lord's power limited? This is God talking. Is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. And the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. That's what God thinks about us putting limitations on him. He will cut you down. He takes his sovereignty very, very seriously, and so should we. If you've just been semi-conscious over the past three times we've been together, you would have remembered me saying that I was going to tie all of this apologetic stuff into Romans. And as a matter of fact, the very reason why I decided to do these breakout sermons was because I wanted you to be able to apologetically defend God's absolute sovereignty in the book of Romans. Why? Because God's sovereignty in Romans is attacked in regard to this subject, and it is attacked, this book of Romans is attacked more than any other book in the canon of Scripture. And the reason why it is is because this book displays God's sovereignty in salvation more than any other book in the canon of Scripture, and so people attack it. They especially attack Romans 9. And why would that be? You've heard me millions of times from the pulpit over the past eight years say that men and women hate they utterly detest any notion that suggests that they had absolutely nothing to do with their salvation. They hate it. I hated it the first time I saw it. Remember I told you I threw a book at the guy? Remember that story? And guess what? They especially hate 
as I said a moment ago, Romans 9, and as I said two weeks ago, a senior pastor who was teaching through the book of Romans in a very large church that I attended was at the time exegeting every verse in every chapter of the book of Romans while completely skipping the entire chapter of Romans 9. We came in to the Bible study. We were expecting to hear Romans 9 because the week before we finished Romans 8 and he went right into Romans 10 never said a word. And the reason why I'm bringing that up again is since I said that, someone else approached me and said, that was my experience too with my pastor at the church that we used to go to. They said that they had a Wednesday night Bible study where the pastor was going uh, in an expository fashion through Romans and he just came in and he skipped Romans 9. Now I'm sure, I would like to think at least, that both of those pastors were approached uh, at least by one person in the congregation asking them why they skipped Romans 9. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when that pastor was asked that question. However, I pretty much already know what his answer probably was as to why he skipped it. He probably did not want to deal with the outcry that he knew would take place while exegeting Romans 9. And as such, having to tell his totally depraved and prideful congregation that they had nothing to do with their salvation, that it was all God and his absolute sovereignty, his absolute choice that saved them and not their own will or their own exertion. As the Apostle John says, many pastors think, listen very carefully, many pastors think that if they teach the truth, which is that God regenerates one's heart first, and then and only then does God allow man to exercise his God-given faith, they believe that if they teach this, and I've talked to them, let me back up. I, I wasn't going to tell this story, but I'll tell this story anyway. Um, when R.C. Sproul came to um, Geneva, a friend of mine went up, up there to hear him speak. And it was a pretty small crowd by R.C. Sproul standards. And so we were able to go up to him afterwards and talk to him. And I went up, and at the time, I was an Assembly of God pastor. And I was sharing with him about how many... Assembly of God pastors that I knew that were closet Calvinists but were afraid to say so because they would have gotten thrown out of the denomination. And he said that his wife had a, he called it, a sort of ministry, was his exact words, a sort of email ministry to pastors who are in the closet about their Calvinism because they don't want to lose their jobs and that she converses with these guys. And he didn't tell me what they talked about or anything. He just said, you should go talk to my wife, you know. So, point is, is that 
there's more than a couple pastors that go through this, is my, my point. And a lot of these pastors are afraid that half their congregation will leave and not come back. And that's true. I've seen it happen. Uh, I know of a pretty large local church that some of the people who are sitting right here this morning, um, they hired a new pastor. And that pastor came in and he had the audacity to preach and teach the doctrines of grace and the absolute sovereignty of God. And that church ended up splitting right down the middle. And half of that church stayed in that building and the other half of that church went and started a new church that was largely built on the doctrines of grace. So the fears are real with pastors and the church splits over the doctrines of grace are real. I just wanted to point that out. But it's not a matter of doctrine alone. It's also a matter of truth and being true to God and true to that doctrine. And true to yourself. If you're a pastor and you know God's calling you to teach the doctrines of grace and you refuse to do it because you're afraid you'll lose your job. And so I not only want you to be able to defend God's sovereignty in Romans, but I and the two other pastors in this church want you to be able to defend God's sovereignty regarding your salvation as it is taught throughout the entirety of Scripture. It is an absolute truth. It points to God's absolute sovereignty, which in turn gives God the most glory. And that, church, should cause you and me to lie prostrate before his throne in praise and adoration. So let's take a closer look here this morning. Let's look at God's sovereignty in Romans. Let's look at God's sovereignty over salvation in Romans. If you were to, and I'm just going to skip around here um, big time. So if you want to just look at Chunks of paragraphs in Romans as I fly by them. Um, you can do that or you could just write them down. But um, Romans 1, 1 through 9, Paul says he was called to be an apostle and to be set apart for the gospel of God. Paul did not call Jesus. Paul was called by God. Paul was out murdering Christians, breaking up Christian families, and throwing Christians in jail. The furthest thing from Paul's mind was a desire to be a Christian and an apostle and a missionary to Gentiles. He hated Christians. But God called Paul 
saved Paul and sent Paul. And none of it was Paul's doing. It was his sovereign God's doing from beginning to end. That's God's absolute sovereignty in Romans. Right out of the chute. First few verses. And if you look at verses 2 through 7, God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, the son of God, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, having been redeemed in him and awaiting future glory. So in God's sovereignty, Jesus is a descendant of David. And just about everything he does is foretold in the prophets. And by his resurrection from the dead, we receive that grace. We receive that apostleship to bring about the gospel to the nations. Those of us that are called to be saints. Point being, it's all God. You can't read it and say that it is a man-made thing. It's a God thing. The prophets, the theophanies, the typologies, the parallels, Mary's pregnancy, the manifestation of the Son of God in the flesh, the dreams of Joseph, the prophecies of Simeon and Anna, the prophecy of Herod killing all the males to and under, the entire three years of Christ's ministry and then his death, burial and resurrection, the realization that we are his elect called by God before we were born, called to do works prepared for us before the foundation of the world. Yes, all of that bought and gift wrapped for us in Romans and elsewhere in the New Testament. Those promises beforehand in the scriptures and the prophets, Paul says, he says, yep, it was all chance. That's it, all chance. God doesn't interfere with man's free will, no sir. God doesn't know the future. If he knew the future and he chose these things, men would just be a bunch of puppets. It's all chance. No, it isn't. It's fate, which is a softer word that I chose instead of choosing the word predetermined or predestination, but I'm using them synonymously here. Then there's Paul in verses 8 through 17 of Romans. Paul does not say in verses 10 and 11 of that chunk of scripture that he has named and claimed and he believes he will receive a successful trip in coming to the Romans. No. He says, without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. Now at least suggest this isn't the first time that Paul has petitioned the Lord asking him to go to the Romans, to allow him to go to the Romans. The Apostle Paul knew full well, and so should we, that the Almighty Sovereign Lord doesn't just grant 
petitions in prayer because we think it's best for us. The petition must be part of his will for our lives. And we have to remember that when it comes to prayer, God is sovereign over that which we do not know and we do not see. And as such, when God says no to our petitions, it's for our own good and the good of his own purposes. My point here is that God is sovereign over Paul's prayers as well as Paul's plans. The two go hand in hand and they, it's the same for us also. It's no different for you and me. Paul teaches us to pray according to God's will. More importantly, Jesus taught us to pray according to God's will. In the Our Father, I hear these word faith people say all the time, you know, ask the Lord for this, ask the Lord for that. His will is his word. And then they'll pull scriptures out of context and twist them to lead you to believe that his will is for you to have a new Cadillac or have vacation cruise or whatever you want, okay? God's your spiritual bellhop. That is not the God of scripture, obviously. What I said before is the norm in scripture, that God decides. Why? <laughs> Again, because it displays his absolute sovereignty and it gives God his due glory. In verses 18 through 32, we see that God's eternal power and divine nature, his invisible attributes are clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So men are without excuse. God is saying, hey, look around. Look at the order in the nature I have created. Remember, we talked about this last week a little. Remember the atom, A-T-O-M, and the sun and the planets. When I was still in the business world, I used to sell vacuum science equipment. Well, that vacuum science isn't Hoovers and Dysons. Vacuum science is stainless steel chambers that allow scientists to pump something down below atmospheric pressure inside the chamber. And they do that. Remember I said last week in the atom, you've got the positively charged nucleus, negatively charged electrons, and they, those electrons go around in perfect sequential orbit. Well, what a vacuum chamber does is it allows scientists to throw those electrons out of orbit and study them in different patterns as they are out of orbit. And freezing them, their configuration, um, in configurations that are more conducive to uh, the flow of electricity, we'll say. A good example would be, you know, this is how they make faster 
computer chips. This is what they do. So, I used to go to college campuses and talk to research scientists who were doing this. And, of course, I came across some Christian research scientists. And so we got talking about um, eternity many times. And they informed me that, um, this is way, way over my head, but... Um, we were talking about eternity and time ceasing to exist and celestial beings moving in a different realm and how they might, how they might move, okay? And they said to me that if you, you know, scientists believe that if you, or if something, I should say, if something travels faster than the speed of light, that time ceases to exist. So they said to me, if you could imagine celestial beings moving from point A to point B faster than the speed to light, faster than the speed of light, then you can imagine them in eternity not being bound by time and them moving in and out of time. And, you know, then they said, we, we were talking one time about, um, I was talking to a guy about, you know, Jesus in his glorified body walking through the wall of the upper room. And um, he said, you know, we can change, we change the molecular structure of things in vacuum science. And you can change the molecular, it, it is possible that the molecular structure could be changed in such a way that something could go through matter or go through some type of matter. And so, and if you want to get even crazier. Um, I watched a documentary recently where these scientists were talking about this, they called it a harnessed electricity that leaves the human body when the human body dies. And they were conjecturing that maybe this could be um, on the order of a soul that it's, a, it's an electrical emission of some type of electrical mass. Again, very beyond me. The reason why I'm telling you this is because I want you to see what we don't know, first of all, and in our finite minds. And, and second of all, I want you to see that the order that we see in the universe is God-glorifying. But imagine what the real order of the universe that we don't see is. I mean, imagine, um, you know, when God, let's just say if, when God looks anthropomorphically because he doesn't have eyes, he's spirit. But let's just say God is looking at the earth. Imagine if God sees viruses, bacteria, um, microscopic things that we don't see. And he sees it all the time what kind of line of sight that would be. It would be pretty cool. But the point is, my point is, order, order, design, intelligent designer. Paul points out God's sovereignty in creation. 
And he points out God's glory in that creation. In verse 19 of chapter 1 of Romans, Paul says, and this is verse 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without, man is without excuse. Here we see that chain of words that I was talking about. We see that there are many absolutes in creation, and those absolutes give way to antithesis. And I'm not talking about moral absolutes here. I'm talking about absolutes in nature, fire, water, land, gravity, the cyclical nature of the weather, the food chain, and how all of these things move from order to disorder, and then they start all over again, birth, rebirth, order, disorder. And even the disorder is order. And we see that God has set everything up like this. This is what I believe is wrapped up in this idea in Romans 2 about creation. The entire creation operates in this way and has since the beginning of time. Or I should say since after Noah's flood, to be technical. And these things clearly point to order, an order in the universe that screams designer, creator, one, capital O, who has said, set it all into motion. By what? The word of his mouth. His matchless glory is everywhere. The stars, the planets, the oceans, the mountains, the animals, the insects. And let's not forget man. Or humankind. For my feminist theologian friends again. So back Back to Romans, we see God's sovereignty continue throughout the letter. And we see God's sovereign judgment. Now we're going to get into morality. His sovereign judgment in chapter 2. We see um, God's righteousness upheld despite man's total unrighteousness. In chapter 4, we see God's absolute sovereignty on display perhaps more here than in any other place. I say that because this chapter shows God's absolute sovereignty going all the way back to Abraham. And it is here that we can not only easily demonstrate God's sovereignty in the lives of men and their decisions, but also we see here God's sovereignty in Christian doctrine. Justification by faith alone is here in Romans, in this chapter. Imputed righteousness is here. Salvation as a free gift is here. And all of it going all the way back to Genesis. It's here. Tell me. How much chance 
do you see so far in Paul's letter to the Romans? Do you think it's by chance that the entire creation is beautiful? Is God glorifying? Do you think it's by chance that God made a plan before he created the world to save man from his sins? Do you think it's by chance that Jacob wrestled with God and that Joseph had that dream that we talked about two weeks ago? Do you think it's by chance that our lawless deeds are forgiven and our sins are covered and we have positionally been that way since before we were born? Do you think it's by chance that the love of God poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us? Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Do you think it's by chance that there was an old Adam and now there's a new Adam? Do you think it's by chance that we will be united with Christ in a resurrection like his? Romans 6, 5. Do you think it's by chance that we have been freed from the law, freed from sin, and have been made instruments for righteousness? Can I say it yet? It's fate. It's providence, it's destiny, it's divine intervention, it's determinism. There's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as luck. Or a leap in the dark or a pig in a poke. This one's going to devastate you, but there isn't even any such thing as potluck. If you determine to make stew in the slow cooker, Laura, stew will be in the slow cooker. No matter how lucky they feel when they go to pick that lid up, they're going to see stew if you predetermined that stew would be in that slow cooker. And we have a potluck coming up in two weeks, so. Unfortunately, this is all we have time for, but um, let, let's remember, let's recap and remember what we've learned God is absolutely sovereign over everything in the universe. God has chosen us to proclaim the good news, to proclaim his gospel message before men and for the salvation of men. God does not necessarily tell us who he will save and who he will pass over And it's none of our concern because he has chosen us to be heralds of the gospel. He has chosen our faithful prayers as the means by which he will work in the lives of men. And we are to be obedient to those commands because we carry out his work on earth. Let's pray.